It's time now for the PDXO WASP podcast, brought to you by the Open Web Application Security Project. The views of the guests do not necessarily represent the views of OWASP, their sponsors, and other stakeholders. Enjoy the show. Our distinguished guest today is Bruce Schneier. Bruce is a public interest security and privacy technologist, cryptographer, and an author of over one dozen books, including the famous blue and red versions of applied cryptography. His most recent book is Click Here to Kill Everybody. He is a fellow and lecturer at Harvard's Kennedy School and a board member of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Bruce's blog, Schneier on Security, is read by over a quarter of a million people. You can find it at schneier.com. He has testified before Congress, is a frequent guest on television and radio, served on several government technical committees, and is regularly quoted in the press. Bruce's symmetric key block cipher called TwoFish was a top five finalist for the Advanced Encryption Standard Selection Process organized by the U.S. National Institute of Standards and Technology. Bruce Schneier, thank you so much for joining with us today. Uh, thanks for having me in these really strange times. You've had a remarkable career in the world of security. Tell us about your early days. Why did you get into security? Why cryptography? Was this something that you always wanted to do? You know, I don't really have a good origin story. I was always interested in cryptography, even as a kid. And uh, I started my career working for the U.S. government, oddly enough. And I did work in crypto, not for the NSA. And that was what I was interested in. So fast forward to the early 90s, there isn't really a book to explain cryptography to the average programmer. So, you know, long story short, I wrote it. And that was the launching of my career. And Bruce, one of the things that you're you're good at, and I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on are, you take these complex subjects like cryptography and, and make it so that developers and other people can get their arms around the concepts and, and get to understanding. Who are some of the writers and thinkers that you also think you're good job at, at that and that you try to emulate? Like, who are your heroes in terms of taking complex subjects and, and making them understandable? Yeah, I can't think of any names right now, but I think that is an important skill that good tech writers, science writers who write for popular audiences have the ability to use stories, use analogies to simplify and to make things that are complex accessible. It's something I think I'm good at. I think why my writings appeal to such a broad audience. And so for you, how did you learn how to write through stories? Like what, what classes did you take in college or people like parents or grandparents or other? How did you become a great storyteller or is that just a, an innate gift that you've, you've always had? You learn by doing. You know, I, I graduated college in physics, which is like the opposite of making things accessible to a popular audience. It is just something I am good at. I, I think of it as translation, like translating more tech, more sciencey concepts into a more general language. Not dumb it down. I think that's a I think that's a mistake and that's a bad way of thinking about it, but simplifying and making it accessible. And I think it's something I got better at by practicing. And like all writing, I mean writing is a muscle. You want to be a good writer, you practice writing. It's not a matter of taking a class and learning a bunch of facts. It's learning how to do it by doing it. Yeah. So write, write those blog posts, write those articles, write those white papers for the young people. So our chapter, OWASP, Open Web Application Security Project, our local chapter, we have a lot of younger people that are to be thought leaders or the lesson learned there is just put in the time, write the thing every day. And there are different types of writing. You know, when I write an op-ed, it's 1,200 words for a very general audience. When I write a blog post, the word length is generally shorter, but it's a more specialized audience. If it's an academic paper, if it's a technical report or a uh, political report, it's for a different audience. And knowing your audience is important. You know, books also, right? 60, 80,000 words. 
for also a general audience. So different writing is different. When the first edition of your applied crypto book came out in 1993, the blue cover back then, it was one of those that I thought brought a security domain to the mainstream, at least with developers. I also think other seminal books, including Adam Shostak's Threat Modeling and the RTFM book by Ben Clark. Did you expect it to be as popular as it is today? And more importantly, are there plans for a future edition? So we had no idea. In a sense, I got very lucky. Was that year, 93, 94, 95, was the opening up of the non-academic internet, right? the beginnings of electronic commerce, where it, you know, it was no longer just researchers and people with you know, .edu accounts. So it was the book that everyone grabbed because there was no other book to explain cryptography in these early years of using cryptography on the internet. And I don't think anyone expected that. We just got really lucky. And yes, so, so Applied Cryptography comes out in 93, the blue cover. Red cover, second edition, comes out in 95. And at this point, there's no hope in updating it. It is just way too old. I co-wrote Cryptography Engineering sort of as a way to write a more modern crypto book. But there are so many other good books today that I don't need to update it. It's not, it's not fulfilling a need anymore. There's a lot of books for a programmer, a researcher, people at any level of math and computer science skill who want to learn cryptography. Back in the 90s, there was almost nothing. There were a few books from the 80s, and that was it. So I was writing into a vacuum, which is, is sort of the opposite of what's happening today. We often hear about how quantum computing will break many of our cryptographic systems in use today, including ECC, RSA, assuming enough qubits are in place and we keep the key sizes the same as now. With that said, what is the plus side of quantum computing? Can it give us an advantage over our adversaries, even if they too have the same technology to attack? You know, quantum computing is a new way of computing, non Neumann architecture. It will solve computing problems that we can't solve today. And it'll be things like optimizations and simulations and shortest pathfinding problems. So the benefits of quantum computing are like ginormous. It could be a revolution on the scale of the revolution from non-computing to computing. So when you think about what's possible, we have no idea. And yes, one of the things that quantum computers can do is break some of our existing crypto systems. But that's like, you know, if there are a million applications, we just talked about two of them. Mm -hmm. So it's really, really minor. And, and I've written about this. I, I Rather than regurgitate everything, I sort of invite readers to type Bruce Schneier quantum computing into Google and get my essay with the great title of cryptography after the aliens land. Bruce written a new book, Click Here to Kill Everybody. I like the title. In that book, you you bring up the concept of, I think it's Internet Plus. I was wondering for our audience that hasn't read that book yet, if you could give a description of Internet Plus. Sure. It's actually not a great term. I didn't have a better term, so we're kind of living with it. And uh, So this is from Click Here to Kill Everybody, which is actually two years old now, amazingly enough, in this weird time of not knowing how the times move. It's already uh, two years old. And I'm trying to capture the internet plus everything attached to it, plus the databases, plus the Internet of Things objects, plus the connectivity. And there really isn't a term that grabs all of that. So I use internet plus. Hasn't caught on, right? Like nobody listening has heard of the term, even though it's been two years. I'm not sure why, and I'm not sure what else to use. But I'm trying to capture everything, the, the entire computing-connected environment 
that we find ourselves immersed in these days. Yeah. One of the things that, that sunk in for me while reading that book was you talk about how we're going into a time where it's going to be cheaper to have the internet on everything. So you're going to actually have to pay more to not have the internet on something. And, and I think you use the example in there of you know internet connected t-shirts or shirts. And I remember talking with people at work, people are like, why would we ever have that on a shirt? And you know what would be the, the use case of that? And, and talking about how it would be nice to have you know, a smart laundry machine that knows how often you've washed your clothes. And we're living in a world of climate change where water's going to become scarcer and scarcer. And so we may not be washing our clothes as often. You know, you get into the, the ramifications to people of having this monitoring or this, this connection on every facet of our life. And then you also talk about how in a number of things, I'm thinking of like pacemakers or automobiles or other things, a lot of times people don't even have access to their own data right now. We don't have the regulations or the policies that give people the ability to even know what data is being captured on them, say in their, their pacemaker or their car. Could you speak more in depth about that? I think access to our data is going to be critical in the in the coming years. So I don't know if you know, I'm involved in uh, Tim Berners-Lee, latest project to re-engineer the internet. It's called Solid. And what it is, is, is personal data. What it is, is a new way to conceptualize data that puts us at the center of it. So instead of my data oh, about, let's say, my hotel stays with Marriott or, or my Fitbit, or my email being stored on servers belonging to those various companies, they would all be stored in, in my personal pod, is what it's called, and other companies and entities would have access to it. And it's a way of reconceptualizing data. Now, that is just one specific example of how we have to rethink data. Now, the problem is our data being in many different places limits how we can use it. It limits how we can access it, and it limits how we can build other apps that make use of it. You know, I want, might want to build some kind of system that looks at my refrigerator data and my Fitbit data and my thermostat data and maybe you know, some data from my location that comes out of my phone. I mean, I just made that up. But you can imagine something that would empower me that might use a lot of different data streams. And that's not really possible today because the data is, is desperate. Bringing it all in one place fixes that. And it's a, it's a radical way of rethinking data. And it's Tim Berners-Lee, so you're going to get these radical rethinkings. But I think it's really important and powerful and something that, you know, something like it is going to happen in the next bunch of years. Just because of the explosion of all of these objects that are effectively collecting data about us and our environment. I'm curious, is Brendan Ike, founder of JavaScript and Firefox and more recently Brave, is he involved in that project? I don't know. I don't think so. I know with Brave, this idea of, I forget what he calls it, but like an attention token where for advertisers that like humans actually own their own source of revenue there. Yeah, I mean, I, that's part, I mean, that's a different stream of thinking about how to re-engineer a relationship with, with the internet, with computers. I think it's related, but it's not the same thing. Gotcha. There's a statement in that book that basically says the Chinese government's mass surveillance goal isn't uh, limit speech as much as the limit the ability to create social movements, organize protests and the like. I'm curious your thoughts on what you're seeing in America right now around the same thing of government trying to limit the ability for, for social movements to be created or protests to be organized. And that's not a U.S. thing. I mean, and that observation about China isn't me. That's been made by political scientists looking at what's going on. Right? That Chinese censorship is much more about organization and opposing the government than 
forbidding topics to be to be discussed. Right? In the United States, surveillance is primarily corporate. When you go to China, surveillance is government. In, in the United States, you're being surveilled by private companies who want to profit off of you. Right? That is how surveillance works in the U.S. It's surveillance capitalism. And there, while there is government surveillance, it largely piggybacks over those corporate systems. So it's a very different uh, methodology. And you know, it, it is what fuels the internet today. And it, it's what fuels a lot of, of companies today. It, it feels very much like an immoral business model, and something we're not going to see in, in 10, 20 years. But today, you know, we are surveilled 24-7 for the purpose of selling us stuff, for manipulating our opinions so we purchase things we might not purchase otherwise. So, Bruce, I remember growing up and watching TV commercials about Volvo, the car company, and back then, and probably still do, they marketed safety. And they convinced me that their cars were the safest on the road and consumers tended to pay more because of that safety, whether the manufacturing costs were justified or not. Why don't we see more tech companies market security as an added value to their products? And I know you just mentioned some of them, they're in the business of spying like Facebook or Google, but for others, why can't we have some sort of incentive to have them even charge more for security if, if it's available, if it's brought forth? I mean, the short answer is no one's going to buy it. And Volvo, I use the Volvo example when I when I talk about this, and they are an exception to this general rule that people don't pay for security and safety. They expect it, but they're not going to pay extra for it. Uh, the other counterexample is Dolphin Safe Tuna. And people did pay more for tuna that was advertised as you know, didn't also kill dolphins while it was being fished. But generally, when we get security and safety, it's because government has forced it. And that's pretty much every single safety feature in automobiles, safety features in airplanes, food safety, consumer goods safety, appliance safety, workplace safety, uh, restaurant safety, that they are almost never differentiators in the market. There are few exceptions, and Volvo's Act did convince the public that they were a safer car. Through, an adver- through advertising campaigns. Mm-hmm. But most of the time, those campaigns fail to move uh, consumer opinion, which is really interesting. I'm not exactly sure why, but it does seem to be true. With that just said, U.S. elections are just around the corner, and I know that you're a proponent for new regulations focused on making security and privacy better for citizens. What is your post-election wish list? What would you like to see happen in both the executive and legislative branches moving forward? First, I'd like the election to be very decisive so we do not have violence in the streets and we have a peaceful transition of power. That's not at all obvious right now. So, you know, let's move ahead of that. Let's assume we're, we're back into something vaguely normal in America where there are political parties that are doing normal things. So what is my question? Because it's really hard to jump ahead of that. But now I just sort of mentally did. So try your question again. What is your post-election wish list? What would you like to see happen both in executive and legislative branches in regards to security regulations? So we certainly need more of them. Now, it isn't everywhere. I mean, right now, the, the EU is the regulatory superpower on the planet. And they have regulated privacy, GDPR. They're looking at uh, security and safety. In the United States, California has a data privacy law has an Internet of Things security law. Not great, but a start. So we need to start doing those things at the, uh, at the federal level. I mean, I'll say it, but it's, it's kind of ridiculous. It's not going to happen. 
you know, we are not yet able as a democracy to pass laws that the money and power don't like. And anything we do is going to have to piss off corporate America. And we're just not able to do that. So in a lot of ways, I've given up on the U.S. federal government, looking towards the states and towards the EU. But, you know, if I was in charge, I could I could put a good list together. I'm just, you know, not sure why I would bother. Uh, you may hear kids crying in the background. You know, I think that's fine. I actually like that part of COVID, that uh, kids and pets and, you know, it shows that we're all human. So I'm I'm okay with that. And the listeners should be too. Good, good. So our chapter, lots of young people thinking about their careers, thinking about how to make a difference in the world, still having that optimism in their heart of, you know, I'm going to change things, I'm going to make things better. What are some of the hard problems if you were young, and you were going to dedicate yourself to something, and you knew, you know, very difficult? What are the problems that you think are are worth wrestling with and and that you would go after? You know, so the first advice is to pick problems that uh, make you excited to get up in the morning. Don't pick problems from a list of the hardest. You, You know, if you're going to, Pick problems to work on. There's a lot of them. So pick something that uh, that excites you. You know, I mean, the problems around security are really no longer about the tech. They're about usability. They're about humans. They're about incentives. You know, we still haven't figured out how to do uh, authentication right at scale. And, and, you know, thing-to-thing authentication is going to make it worse. We do not have an answer to, uh, to what do we do about systems that aren't patchable because the economics of them just aren't the same as the iPhone. And there never will be a team of engineers to write patches and, and to be able to download them. And these are going to be Internet of Things everything. We haven't any, gone anywhere near solving the supply chain issue. And by this, I mean much more than, you know, should we use Huawei routers or, or TikTok? But how do I deal with our very international supply chains that the computers we use, even though they might be built by American companies, are not built in the U.S.? Uh, by chips that are not made in the U.S., uh, programmed by people with hundreds of different passports. And so these are some very real problems. Uh, we do not really have any good way of uh, building tech-aware policy that is good. I, I spent a lot of time in this right now, the notion of public interest tech, that how do we design technology of the public interest? What do we do when we uh, don't have just the near-term profitability of a handful of tech companies steering our international societal technology policy. You know, would that be better and how? The answer's got to be yes. I mean, right, you know, if someone said, you know, we're going to design society so it's optimized for a bunch of billionaires, you'd look at them funny and say, that's a dumb way to optimize society. But it's kind of what we got. How do we do it a different way? You're involved in policy a lot more than a lot of us. What advice would you have for people who work in security at, at mid-sized companies, you know, not the Facebooks, not the Googles, not the Apples? How can they get involved from your perspective in, in local, state, and, and federal level policy discussions or, or informing those policymakers? You get involved by getting involved. And this is hard for us techies to, to understand, but nobody wants us to run in spout some tech truths, and then leave. No one will listen to us. We won't do any good. If we want to get involved, we have to get actually involved in the long term and establish trust. So there are going to be legislative staffs that need help. And whether it's part-time advisory or, or a career change in full-time, there are ways to get involved at all levels, from local to, to, to Congress. There are ways to get involved in government agencies, at NGOs. 
And all of these areas are trying to bridge tech and policy. But there's no shortcut to getting involved. And, and, and that is frustrating for us. You know, we, we like it because we think the truth should win. And it turns out that trust and relationships win, and then the truth follows. Bruce, your books, presentations, blog posts are great. But I think the thing that makes your professional life story most remarkable is that you created a symmetric key block cipher called Two Fish that was so good, it made it to the top five finalists for the AES selection process. And for those who don't know, I think it was a three-year process in public. Your algorithm was scrutinized by some of the best minds in cryptography. It had to be an emotional roller coaster for you. Looking back 20 years now, what do you remember most about that experience? And would you do it again if such an event came along? So it, 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 it really is kind of the most fun you could have as a cryptographer. You think of it as the great crypto demolition derby. Everyone puts their algorithms in the ring, and we all beat up on each other, and then whoever's left standing wins. It wasn't like that, but it was like that. So yes, it was fun designing the algorithm. I, mean, I ended up writing an entire book, which was the design document of the algorithm. But kind of more fun was crypto analyzing the other algorithms. And I was part of you know, a handful, three, five papers that tried to show flaws in other algorithms. You know, this was uh, the 90s that we had a lot of exciting research in block cipher cryptography. I was one of the five finalists. I was not selected. I kind of think I came in third. Mm -hmm. I mean, you looked at the, 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 the top choices. There was uh, Ringdahl, which was the fast, I thought, aggressive choice. There was Mars that was the slower and more, no, sorry, Serpent, that was a slower and more conservative choice. And Me Too Fish was uh, kind of the, the happy, me happy medium. Mm -hmm. In the end, Ringdahl was selected. It's a great algorithm. I mean, here it is, what, 20 years later, longer, and we still don't have flaws in it. We still don't have any real cryptanalysis of it, which is, you know, super impressive. But, you know, um, two fish as well falls into that category, but probably hasn't been, hasn't been analyzed to the same degree because it's not the international standard. Now, would I do it again? I mean, back then I was doing much more math. Today, as you said, I'm doing much more policy and political science, or I teach at the Harvard Kennedy School. I'm not sure I can get my mind back into the math to uh, do something that intense, that focused. But I mean, no argument, it was super fun. And there have been competitions since then I haven't participated in. There have been stream cipher competitions. I mentioned before the uh, post-quantum algorithm competitions, all again run by NIST. There have been competitions run in the EU. So there have been crypto competitions, oh, sorry, hash function competitions that I didn't part, that I had an algorithm in but, but didn't make an early cut. So, I mean, the younger cryptographers are doing that, and that's fine. For our younger people who are looking at grad school and things like that, you mentioned that you do some work with the Kennedy School at Harvard. What are some of the other programs that you respect in that space? And who are some of the thought leaders for policy that you look to? I'm thinking of like Ben Buchanan. I think he's at John Hopkins or, or maybe. Uh, ben Buchanan is at uh, George Washington. I'm bad at coming up with names off the top of my head. So I, I'm just going to forget people. There are lots of programs now that are mixing uh, tech and policy. I maintain a public interest tech uh, sort of source, uh, source list, list of uh, various links and ideas and concepts. And, and I do have a list of, of academic programs, not just in the U.S., but internationally. So it's publicinteresttech.com with hyphens. 
and it's a public interest tech resources page. So anybody interested in, in sort of being in that area between tech and policy, go there. Lots of, of people have written re- documents and reports. There are a list of NGOs, list of uh, governments, a list of academic programs. So, the, so wander around there if you're interested in that topic. So another question back to some crypto stuff. So a ton of engineers, security people were big Neil Stevenson fans. The guy writes his books in Vim. He's written Cryptonomicon, Snow Crash, RIMD, Seven Eyes, a lot of a lot of great books. I'm curious, what's the story behind the creation of the solitary encryption algorithm? And how did you get involved in, in the book Cryptonomicon? So Neil and I are, are friends. And when he was writing it, I forget how it came up, but he wanted some way for, uh, for two people to communicate securely in, in a prison setting. So I designed this algorithm for him. He used it in the book. I got the right to write the technical appendix yep. for Cryptonomicon because the algorithm was in there, which was kind of fun. Uh, the algorithm has, there have been some flaws in it. There, there's a mistake I made, kind of a dumb mistake when, when I designed it. So it shows you how, how easy it is to, to get this wrong. Uh, it's still secure for the, like, the kind of messages you would pass in a, uh, in a pencil and paper setting, right? It's not gonna be, they're not going to be long messages. And since then, I thought of a much better technique of using uh, coins as pointers and, and playing cards. So if I would do it again, I would actually write an RC4-like algorithm that used coins as pointers and the playing cards as the array. And I'm now kind of speaking to people who know what RC4 looks like. And I could kind of mirror that algorithm. But it's, it's, it's hard. So what you learn is that pencil and paper cryptography is hard. It takes you all freaking evening to encode or decode a message. Have you written a blog post on the, the coin pointer piece to that? I don't think I have. I don't think I've written that up. It's a long time ago, so maybe I have. Google knows these things. I don't. Hey, Bruce, why are the squids in your blog post? Well, it's just Friday afternoon. So on Friday afternoons, there's a post about squids on my blog. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Bruce, I know your position on the surveillance of us, the biggest offenders are the corporations. We live now in these times where you have social movements and you have protests and they're not like they're organic, but they're also seeded with or enhanced by state actors and non-state actors. Can you speak to that surveillance and speak to the, the challenge there? There's a number of, I know you're involved some with New America. There's some people there, Peter Singer, who wrote a book called Like War about kind of the social media wars that are happening. And then even, you know, in the late 90s, there's a couple of guys, David Ronfeld and John Arkilla from from Rand at the time that that built out this concept around net war and, and the, the coming information security and how network-based groups are going to be more and more influential. So I'm not sure what, what, what tack to take. There's an enormous amount here, right? I mean, you sort of, and you can see as your question kind of meandered, how many different topics right, it touches on, which means this is hard, right? It's not a simple matter of figuring out how governments can perform surveillance. We know that, right? We, governments have done surveillance since the beginning of government. And we know that we have uh, basically a warrant process. The idea that we need checks and balances on extraordinary government capabilities that we want them to have to, to solve crimes. And you touched on the notion of, of social media and how they are being weaponized. And there's a lot written on that. We have no solutions yet, but, but clearly this is going to be a challenge to democracy, some area where uh, the very notions of free speech are being used against us 
because of the affordances of modern technology. We're also worrying about actual malicious actions in cyberspace and what it means in geopolitics for there to be cyber war, what it looks like. You mentioned Ben Buchanan. He's written about that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we don't have answers here. It is very much a different world. And interestingly, a world that science fiction didn't predict. And I find that very interesting and, and, and important in ways I'm not sure exactly why. But, but we do have to sort of figure this stuff out. And here again is a place where tech and policy mix, that understanding both is vital. So I don't have answers. And I'm trying to teach cybersecurity policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. These are grad students in, in public policy. And I'm trying to teach them enough tech to, to basically be, to be dangerous, to understand the issues. But these are really issues that they're going to have to solve in ways that I'm not sure we understand yet. I'm curious, the, the people that you teach in those classes, are there any typical backgrounds? Are these more technological people that have found themselves veering towards policy work or more like public policy wonkish people that tech is an important sector and, and are trying to get deeper in tech? I mean, they are policy students. They're getting masters in public policy, masters in public administration. So they generally come from a uh, liberal arts background, uh, very international, often older students. They spent a few years in government, at an NGO, in the military, at a federal agency. And they're coming back to Harvard, to the Kennedy School, because they want to change the world. So very motivated, uh, very smart, very international. And, you know, I think they're going to be in positions to change the world. And if I can teach them how technological security works, internet security, computer security, I think I'm doing a service because that will permeate a lot of different areas that they're going to go into. Okay, so my last question is about being really good at something. I know for me, the tension is if you, it seems like to be an expert in something or to be even good at something, it means massive amounts of time and energy, often at the expense of other parts of your your perspective, like, oh, and maybe I'm wrong in this, but you know, we look at you and we see you as an expert. And we see you as someone who is where we want to be. Do you feel like you had to make that choice, put in that extra time, and, and give up on other things, or is that a false choice that you would say doesn't exist? No, no, not sure how to answer. I mean, everything you do in life is giving up on other things, even as simple as going to one restaurant for dinner and not going to other restaurants. Remember that time we used to go to restaurants? So, of course, everything you do means you're not doing something else. And if you become an expert in something, you're not becoming an expert in other things. So yes, of course, I don't think that's bad. I don't think that's a trade-off. I don't think that's something to, to worry about. I think that's being human in sort of a linear temporal universe where we have you know finite times and we decide what to do with them. And I like to say you know we decide deliberately. I think more often than not, things are kind of thrust upon us and we we make choices not fully understanding the ramifications and sort of pinball our way through life. And, and that's okay too. Bruce, thank you so much for talking with us today. Do you have any upcoming events that you would like to talk about or promote? You know, I do. And in this weird COVID times, I never remember any of them until the day before. Uh, Schneier.com is my blog. If you uh, look at speaking events, you'll, you'll sort of see where I'm speaking. My writing is there. So, I mean, you know, we're all just doing the best we can. I actually like uh, virtual speaking events. I, I miss traveling. I miss speaking in front of audiences, but being able to connect in these times is really valuable. So one of the nice things about COVID is you're no longer limited to the speaking events in your area. So go on the Harvard website and see who's speaking in your sphere, and go on the Columbia and Princeton and uh, Berkeley and Stanford and 
Notre Dame and everywhere else and, and, and see what's interesting. So, I mean, to me, that's kind of the hidden excitement here of everything going uh, virtual, that the sense of place isn't there and you can be anywhere. I'm taking a virtual tour of the Paris catacombs tomorrow. <laughs> nice. I know that sounds cool, doesn't it? Yeah, we really, we appreciate all the work you do, especially, you know, not in your laurels, continuing to invest in the people coming up with the policy work. Can't thank you enough for all that you do. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. And let's, you know, when we get back into something vaguely normal, I can come out to Portland and, and meet everybody in person. Absolutely. Thank you so much. To hear this podcast again, visit anywhere a podcast is played. For more information, go to owasp.org forward slash www forward slash chapter forward slash Portland.